And at this point, I invite the children of the children's choir to go with Mrs. Templeton out the door there as you practice for your worship later. If you look at the cover of your bulletin, um, you'll see an ancient image. If anyone's ever been to Rome, has anyone been to Rome? Has anyone been down in the catacombs of Priscilla? This image is found from the catacombs there. I've seen it in person. It's a striking image because it's like from the first 300 years of the church. And notice, who's on the good shepherd's back? Is it a sheep? No, it's a goat. What the early church in Rome was trying to depict here is that they were of that other flock that Jesus talks about. That they, as the Gentiles, are the people brought into the saving knowledge of Jesus to know God as their God. It's a wonderful image. And these propers, these readings for today are very special to me for a couple of reasons. Number one, that hymn is my, that we sang for the, um, the psalm was sung at my baptism on September 19th, 1982, right? And so I've always seen that as part of my story in Jesus. Number two, this text was the first text that I ever preached on after being ordained nearly, well, 10 years ago. And these texts, in addition to being special to me, are so rich with so many different messages that it's really hard to pick one. I really struggled this week on what to preach on because there's so much going on here. I settled on the Acts passage because it gives us an idea of true Christian community. Did you catch it? It's a beautiful reading. Verse 24, the church is celebrating and praising God together. In verse 32 of chapter of that Acts passage, the church is being of one heart. In verse 33, the apostles are preaching powerfully. And in verse 34, the church is sharing all that they have. And it's to the glory of God and the good of his people. This is the type of church we all long for, isn't it? This is the type of community that we want to believe in. These are the type of men that we would follow to the ends of the earth. It seems too good to be true. And in fact, outside of Jesus it is. Can this be? Yes. Can this community exist? Yes. Can these leaders exist? Absolutely. But only as gifts from God. Only as God Equips. And so I want to look at this text today using three different lenses. Number one, I want you to see that unity is a gift from God. 
Unity is not something you can manufacture. It's not something you can put together, cobble together. It's a gift from God if it's going to be lasting. Number two, leadership is needed. But leadership of this kind is from another world. Leadership is from another world. Number three, personal holiness is from another person. Number three, personal holiness has to be from another person. And so we see that every element here of community and development and growth is something that God is giving to the church and to us. Number one, long-standing unity, a unified community, is a gift from God. Well, why do we struggle so much with this? In his book, Soulmates, which we're going through as a small group, pastor and writer David Horn writes, most often what we understand to be Christian community tends to be over-sentimentalized. We talk about this, and it shouldn't be surprising to us. We as human beings like to over-sentimentalize things, even, you know, particularly things in the past. I think it was Edmund Burke, the political philosopher, that said we like to draw a curtain across the negative things in the past. And we do that individually. Think about your own friendships. How often do you talk about that time that your best friend betrayed you and the friendship almost broke up? <laughs> Not very often, right? Or families, how often do we only talk about the good times and we don't talk about the frustrations, the disappointments, the words and actions that wound, the lack of forgiveness, the trust that needs to be rebuilt? Right? We don't talk about that stuff so much as we idealize the Norman Rockwell dinner table at Thanksgiving, right? That image. How about even church? Well, we talk about the mountaintop experiences. God was really moving at that point in my life, that retreat weekend, that, that weekend that I went away and, and just felt the Lord's presence, right? We don't talk about the nitty-gritty, the false teachers we've had to confront, the evil shepherds that Ezekiel talks about in the alternate first reading for today. The mundane tasks that actually keep the church running. Do you see, it's easy to over-sentimentalize community and good community. And you've heard me say it before, you'll hear me say it again. To understand the greatness of God's grace, we have to understand the depth of our own sin. To understand the greatness of the community that God wants to build, we have to be honest about the community that we can't build on our own. There's a reason that Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer in John 17, Lord, sanctify them in the truth that the word and your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask these only, for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their, world, through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 22 of John 17, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and I loved them 
even as you loved me. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Why is Jesus praying this prayer? Because he knows that short of the Father uniting people in one heart in him, it ain't going to happen. Jesus himself prays that. What, what, what does that mean for us? I mean, when we try so foolhardily to build such communities. If Jesus doesn't think it can be done without the Father giving it, should we? He prays for that gift for the church because we don't have it outside of him, outside of its gift, being a gift. So the first way to build community in the church is to admit that you and I can't build it. Look at the early church. The task is too difficult. The task of unifying a selfish, needy, self-centered people, and not just one people, but people from multiple ethnicities and nations all over the world, is darn near impossible. It is impossible. And yet, that's where we find our church in Acts. If you haven't already, open with me to the Acts passage. It's here in your bulletin, too. But it's right on the front page, Acts chapter 4. We need leadership from another world, and Jesus is our model leader. We need a leader that's outside of this, that's outside of us. Notice what's going on in verses 24 through 26 of chapter 4. And when they heard it, who's they? The friends and relatives. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it, who through the mouth of our father David by your servant said to the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. What are they doing there? Do you know what's going on here in Acts? It might be helpful if you, know, if you do. Um, the apostles have been brought before the Sanhedrin and they've been questioned because they healed a man. Do you remember the man that's at the gates and, and Peter says to him, silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Christ, rise up and walk. And the man rises up and walk and everybody around them see him walking and they praise God and the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders can't deal with this. So they haul them into court and they scold them and tell them, you are not to speak in Jesus' name. And Peter says, I'm paraphrasing, I can't help it. This is true. And proclaims it again to them. And the leaders don't know what to do with them, so they release them. That's where this verse picks up. So the apostles are released, and God's people are praising him. Praising him. Giving glory to him. Worshiping him. Why? Because... He's demonstrated who he is. He's demonstrated that he is over the nations, over the leaders. They see Jesus at work in their lives. They see John 10, 11 at work in their lives. They don't just see it as a sentimental passage. They see Jesus, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. 
and focus with me on it. That This is not Jesus laying down his life. They're not looking at a sacrifice. They're seeing that Jesus has done this for them, do you see? They're seeing that Jesus has laid down his life to defend his flock, do you see? They see that in truth, in what's happened to the apostles. Jesus has defended the apostles and set them free. And so they respond by worshiping God. Communities and groups, even nations, often long to follow leaders. And you know what? When they follow their leaders, they look like their leaders. As followers of Jesus, we too need to look like him, need to reflect him, need to see him at work in our lives as the good shepherd, because he is. 19th century Scottish minister Alexander McLaren writes this. He says, a soul habitually in contact with Jesus will imbibe sweetness from him, just as garments laid away in a drawer with some perfume absorb the fragrance from that beside which they lie. Isn't that a beautiful image? That a soul habitually in contact with Jesus will imbibe sweetness from him. Just like that shirt that you stick in the drawer with that perfume or, or, or that, that thing. You, you ever notice how, I, I, this is a sidetrack, but I'll take it. Um, there, there's one thing that, that's really special that God gives to us, and that's how smells bring back memory. Have you ever, like, found a piece of clothing that was, like, from a certain place? Maybe it was a parent's house or a grandparent's house. And it just smells like grandma or grandpa, that perfume that they wear. Or like that person that's so beloved to you. That's what the Scottish minister is talking about. That, that as we spend time with Jesus, so we should radiate that scent. That people should look to us and say, what is that about you? You have the whiff, if you would, of Christ on you. How can this be? In my experience, wherever two or three are gathered together, you don't get sweet smells. <laughs> and I'm not just talking about after you go for Mexican. There's an old saying in politics, whenever two or three are gathered, there you'll have politics. It's the sadness of the human condition, isn't it? That it's usually not the glories of diversity or opinion that brings us together. Why does the church have a unity of heart and mind? Because the Holy Spirit is acting so strongly in the people, and the people are discerning the Holy Spirit's acting in them so clearly that they take their own agendas and priorities and set them aside for Jesus' agenda and priority. They take their own leadership and set it aside for Jesus' leadership, for the Holy Spirit's leadership. Through Bible, prayer, personal opinion, and agendas become second to the kingdom of God. St. John explains it in his letter today. Look with me at that reading. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. It's on the inside of your bulletin. Or if you have your Bibles, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. 
you know he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there's no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Well, what do we make with this passage? We all sin. Does that mean that we're not in Christ? That's not what John's saying. What John's saying here is that anyone who makes a practice of sin is not born of God. That if we're, keyword, practicing sin, not turning away from it, but keep going back to it, keep indulging it, we are not born of God. Because the Holy Spirit cannot abide that and doesn't allow that in us. The Holy Spirit is constantly trying to move us to look like Jesus. So the two can't coexist, you see. You can't continue practicing sin and then say, I love you, Jesus. They're contradictory. In Acts 4.32, we see the unity of heart on display. Look with me at Acts 4.32, the beginning of the verse. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This is a church of one heart, notice. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. One heart and soul. In the Greek, cardia kai suke. Cardia kai suke. Cardia heart suke. Sounds like what? Psychology. Soul. Right? What's going on here? Who can reach to the depths of our hearts and to the heights of our souls? Who can form that? Who can form our affections, our desires, our emotions, our souls, our lives? Can anybody outside form that? Can you and I even form that? Well, we can make habits, but ultimately those things lie even beyond us ourselves. No, there's only one person who can, and that's the Holy Spirit. Again, I take you back to Jesus' words in his prayer of John 17. I in them and you in me, he prays to the Father, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you loved, loved them, rather, even as you loved me. The good shepherd desires to lead us to green pastures and still waters, places of peace. Again, a unity of heart and mind is not something we can create. It's something that has to be given by the Holy Spirit. And what do we see also going on in this Acts passage, in this model of the early church? The apostles preach powerfully, and the people are generous to see that. How is this made? Well, there is an invitation here to personal holiness. But it's that third last point, that holiness has to come from another person. Personal holiness has to come from the person of the Holy Spirit. Naturally, we human beings are sinful. Not a surprise. What does that look like? We're self-centered. We make everything about us. It's about our feelings and experiences. It's not about the community. It's not about the hurting. It's about me. People don't care about each other who are self-centered. 
People don't care about the hurting world who just want the service for themselves. They're all about their own needs. And, you know, we might scold them. We might throw morality at them. We might berate them. But the only thing that can change the heart and the mind is the Holy Spirit. The only thing that can undo that self-centeredness is the Holy Spirit. There's people that try other things. You've seen it. I've seen it. We see it in history. What do we do when we want to make people good? Well, maybe if you're the government, you use power. We say, oh, we're going to make you share your property with other people. That's called communism. What do we do when we try to do this from external control? We see totalitarianism. How about in religion? We say, well, if I just preach the law to people, if I just tell them, that's wrong, this is right, keep doing that, keep doing that, don't do this, that'll change their heart. We know that is fundamentalism and moralism. None of that is Christianity. The only thing that can change the human heart is the good shepherd himself working in the human heart. Personal holiness comes from the Holy Spirit. So, finishing this sermon today, why does this sound too good to be true? The simple answer, because outside of Christ, a community like this described in Acts is too good to be true. Outside of the Holy Spirit's influence, individuals can't achieve this. Outside of Jesus Christ, we have no hope. So I'll ask you, going forward from today, where do you see yourself in your closeness to God? How is your heart united with his? Do people see him in you? Do they smell him in you? Is there a direct correlation here? between you and he, and knowing you and knowing him. Of course, we all fall short on this. But is there something in you that reflects Jesus? Just as that item of clothing, if we aren't spending time with Jesus, we're not going to look like him. If we're not taking that time to pray, to be in in common worship, to come to the table and be fed by him, we can't possibly show him to the world. Point number two, do you see and expect leadership from another world? Are are you trying to use the tools of this one? What does that mean? Are you trying to be good on your own strength? Are you trying to be good by following 10 steps or whatever that is? Good luck. 10 steps to happiness ain't gonna work. Memorizing those five things aren't going to keep you on track. Might influence you. Number three, how's your personal holiness? Where do you see the person of the Holy Spirit acting in your life? How's God forming you and us together? Are you allowing it? Are you in a hurry? Are you allowing it? Or are you taking the time to marinate, as, as it were, to exist with God and his people. How is grace forming you? Notice, it's all a gift. 
all a gift. Let's pray for that gift. O God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our only Savior, the Prince of Peace, give us grace seriously to lay to heart the great dangers we are in by our unhappy divisions. Take away all hatred and prejudice and whatever else may hinder us from godly union and concord. That as there is but one body and one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, so we may be all of one heart and one soul, united in one holy bond of truth and peace, of faith and charity, and may come with one mind and one mouth to glorify thee. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.